But really what I want to tell you and remind you of is we have Go Week coming up. It's upon us. Go Week is next Sunday. It starts next Sunday. It's from May 7th to the 13th. We can shout out that a little bit more. Go Week. We want to be a church on the move in our community. We don't want to just be people who talk, you know, gospel language, but just do it inside these doors. We want to be people who go out these doors, not just with the words of God, the declaration of the gospel, which is the hope that we get to offer the world, but also demonstrating that in real practical ways so that people can see and get a sense of who Jesus is from seeing us in action. So that's the goal. Uh, Go Week is sort of a catalytic week where we try to get hundreds of you, hundreds of people from our church serving in their neighborhoods, uh, coming, as Terry likes to say, man, if everybody brought uh, like a, you know, like an egg bake or a casserole to a neighbor and just told them that Jesus loved them, can you imagine the number of casseroles going out around the community next week? So practical things like that that we want to challenge you to do, as well as more event-based ministry opportunities that you can sign up for on, the, on our website. Some of those are starting to go fast, so there's you know, uh, lots of partners, lots of opportunities all throughout the week to serve. Join up with your small group or a few families or a few, a few people uh, in your community group of some, uh, some kind and serve together. Um, we're going to kick all of that off next Sunday at 4 p.m. We're going to be joining with uh, a few other churches for a time of multi-church, a multi-church prayer gathering that's happening at City Church, uh, which is in uh, Cool Springs Park. So come on out to that time of fellowship. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing songs together. And we're going to be interceding on behalf of our community. So that'll kind of launch Go Week for us. Be praying about it. Please sign up. Be involved in making a difference here in our community. I'm going to pray for Go Week. And I'm also going to pray for uh, this message. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, come before you. We want to be, become even, even more and more a people who are known by our love, known by our love for other people. That, Lord, we would take that light into the darkness through our good deeds and our words of the good news. Lord, it would not be a success for us if we just sent a bunch of people out in our own spirit just patting ourselves on the back, saying, look at me, I did a good deed this week. Lord, it's only a success if people get to see and experience the love of God, get a foretaste of the good news of the gospel, that people go from living in darkness and see a great light. And Lord, only you can do that through your Holy Spirit. Give us your power to do that. May we not go out in fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Prepare us, Lord, that we might be able to make this impact. And Lord, today as we encounter your word, may we see it in a new light. This scripture that we've read and, and sung now as we bring into our hearts. Change us, transform us because we sat under the teaching of your word today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Life is a glorious mess. Would you agree? If you've been here for a little while, you know that's a familiar saying to me. I like to use that to sort of describe 
life. Um, life is a glorious mess. It is filled with glorious things. Life is filled with laughter and joy and, and great memories and meaning and beauty and bacon, right? You're a vegan tofurkey, right? It's good, it's, it's glorious, but life is also a mess. Life is also filled with pain and tragedy and frustration and injustice. Life is filled with sorrow. It is a glorious mess. And in case you were wondering, or maybe you've been led astray by false teaching, where you think becoming a Christian, being a Christian means that you get all the glory parts and none of the mess parts, I hate to break the news to you, you are sadly mistaken. And if you listen to preachers that preach like that, stop listening to them. Life is not just up and to the right all the time. That's not how this works. Christians, you and I, we deal with the mess of life just like others. Now, just as a reminder, that doesn't mean that when you become a Christian that you experience every single kind of mess that you would have if you weren't a Christian. I thank God that he came into my life at about age 18 and he began to transform me to live according to his view, his moral vision for my life in the world because I was able to avoid a lot of mess and brokenness. I often say, but by the grace of God, man, where would I be in the mess of my life? And the same could be said of you. But we still deal with the messes of life. We still deal with pain and sorrow and heartbreak and disappointment of all kinds, tragedy of all kinds. And in fact, in some ways, being a Christian, following Christ, brings a whole new set of mess into your life. Some of you know what I mean by that. And so here's the point, whether you're old or young, whether you're a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian, you're here checking out church and religion, whatever gender or race you are, we all deal with what uh, REM, one of my favorite 90s band, likes to say, everybody hurts sometimes. It's just part of life. Now, what our faith does provide, though, is a better way, a more sure way to handle the ups and downs, the mountain tops and the valleys, the swamps of life, the glory and the mess. It offers us a unique eternal perspective to be grounded in historical truth. And so it's a better way to face the hardships, the glorious mess. And so whether you're new to Christianity or you've been a, whole, a Christian your whole life, really that's the focus that we're learning together through this series in the Psalms that we're calling the antidote. And we are training, being trained, getting a kind of a, a tool belt, a toolkit of how to pray our messiness back to the Lord. That's what we're doing. So the mess that we're going to deal with today is the mess of hopelessness, of hopelessness. Now, what does hopelessness feel like? What does it feel like? Well, the psalmists are replete. The psalms are replete with examples, emotional word pictures, vivid pictures of what hopelessness feels like that you can relate to. Like Psalm 6 that says, I am worn out from groaning. You know, hopelessness feels sometimes like, 
Some of you came to church today hoping to get coffee and realize that our coffee machine was down and you were like, ugh. <laughs> Sorry for contributing to your hopelessness today. Or again, the psalmist says, all night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. Hopelessness feels like crying yourself to sleep. You ever had that experience? Or Psalm 88, I am overwhelmed with trouble and my life draws near to death. Hopelessness feels not just like the glass is half empty, that it's completely empty. There's nothing in it. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit, the psalmist said, like one without strength. Hopelessness feels like you can't even get out of bed in the morning. Or how about the common cry of many of the psalms, Lord, how long, O Lord? How, will you forget me forever? Hopelessness feels like things will never change and God doesn't even care. Can you relate to that? Maybe you've been through there. Maybe you've been there. And if you haven't, just live a little bit longer. It'll come. It'll come. Even if your life is, like, pretty good, you're living your best life, you're living a blessed life, that's great. But there is still a sense, if you're paying attention, if you have any compassion or you're paying attention to the world around you, there's a lot of reason to experience hopelessness, isn't there? I mean, look at the, the shockwaves of the pandemic and what that caused in our society. We look at the, the shootings that continue to happen, war. We look at a crum crumbling trust in institutions and organizations. We see just a cultural upheaval where good is called evil and evil is called good. And sometimes you wake up and you say, I, don't even, I feel like a stranger in my own land. I was reading a New York Times article by Mike, uh, excuse me, Mary Pfeiffer. And Mary Pfeiffer wrote about balancing despair and joy. I wonder if you can relate to any of her words. Listen to what she says. She says, underneath my ordinary good life, I am in despair in the world. Some days the news is such that I need all my inner strength to avoid exhaustion, anxiety, and depression. I rarely discuss despair. My friends don't either. We all feel the same. We don't even know what to say. So we keep our conversations on our own gardens and our families and our books and our movies. Many of us feel like we're walking through sludge. She continues, we live in a time of groundlessness when we can only reasonably predict no further than our dinner time. She says, of course, America isn't Eastern Ukraine, Afghanistan, or Yemen, but nonetheless, listen, we are a lonely, frightened people who have lost hope in the future. Whew. Can you relate to any of that? You feel that sense? And so I'm reading it and balancing despair with joy. I'm like, okay, Mary, bring, bring us the joy. How do you do this? How do you solve this? And she says, in times like this, what we need are world-class coping skills. And she goes on to talk about her 
breathing routines, exercises for mindfulness as the hope for her despair. Now, I'm not disparaging Mary, and I'm sure, in fact, I know those can be really helpful in the moment when you're feeling anxiety, mindfulness, breathing in, just kind of being grounded. Fine, that's all good. But Mary, if this is all you got to give me as a cure for the hopelessness that we see in our world, I'm heartbroken for you. If this is it, if this is all you have, friends, to help you deal with the pain of life around you, I am heartbroken for you. And do you know that, that over the last decade, studies, mental health studies have been done, studies on sadness and despair have been done. Over the last 10 years, there is a steady incline of hopelessness, about 35% higher hopelessness than 10 years ago. And if you are a young teenage female, it's about 79% more hopelessness. We have a problem. And we need, friends, we need a better answer. I'm sorry, we need a better answer than mindfulness routines and breathing better. Good things, not an antidote. We need something that's grounded, and this is where the message turns hopeful, because we find that in Psalm 126. Psalm 126 gives us something far greater, a far greater antidote to dealing with our hopelessness, and he gives it through two really powerful, beautiful images or word pictures that we're going to see, and it's going to sort of give us an outline of the text of where we want to go today, streams in the desert and praying our tears, or rather sowing, I should say, our tears. So those are the two we're going to look at. Let's talk about the streams in the desert. Look at verse 1, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Ah, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The first three verses here in this psalm, the psalmist is recounting a historical moment of revival, a moment of great restoration for the Jewish people. This was a pinch-me-I-must-be-dreaming season For the Jewish people. And most biblical scholars would agree that what the psalmist is referring to here in the first three verses is the miraculous return of the Jewish people from exile back to the promised land after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They returned in the in the year of 538 BC. If you're not real familiar with this historical phenomenon, this event, you can read about it actually in the book of Ezra, which outlines, chronicles this incredible moment. But essentially what happened is that God did the miraculous. God did the impossible. He took a pagan, godless, cruel, brutal king named Cyrus, and he turned his heart toward the Jewish people. And Cyrus did something that like no other king would do. He released the people from captivity. 
And not only did he allow them to go back to their land of origin, he actually funded, he helped fund their entire rebuild of their city, rebuild of their temple and their worship, and he provided financial um, backing for the security so that they could do this with his protection. I mean, this was unheard of. It was so unheard of, it was so unexplainable that the nations surrounding couldn't come up with another reason how this could happen except to say, God has, must have done all of this. This has to, this can only be attributed to the God of Israel. And that's what happened. Now, amazing as this season of life was in Israel, all of that is now in the rearview mirror. It's all in the past because verse 4 tells us that life for the psalmist, life for Israel, was more like the Negev. Now, what was the Negev? The Negev was a barren, desolate uh, place. It was uh, south of Beersheba in Israel. I'll show you a map. Down there at the V, down there at the bottom, that whole region is called the Negev. And it is a desolate place. No life uh, is in this valley, in this area. Miles and miles, all you see is brown. Everywhere you go, no green, nothing grows in a place like this, or at least it would seem so. I'll show you a picture. This is kind of a picture of what this area looks like. Really tough environment. Basically, what the psalmist is saying is saying, this is what life feels like right now. This is what life is like for us right now. This is my emotional state right now. It's a desert. But notice what the psalm is doing. He's not bemoaning. He's not, his, he's not dwelling on his desert experience. He's praying his desert experience back to the Lord. He's praying his emotions, even in tears, back to the Lord in faith, remembering. What's he remembering? First three verses. He's remembering the restoration. He's remembering the miracle. God, you did it in the past. We remember it. And what is he saying? Lord, do it again. Lord, would you do it again? Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. There's our image, streams in the Negev. Now, if you visited the Negev, you look around, you say, streams? Forget it. Nothing is going to grow here. There is no water in this place, except, except occasionally there'll be a big storm in the mountains, and all of this rain will rush through the valleys and into these dry riverbeds, forming giant oases and rivers that are overflowing, teeming with life, seemingly overnight green everywhere. Plants, wildflowers, uh, animals start to flock to these oases. I mean, it's an incredible scene. He's saying, God, you can do this. God, you can restore. You are a God who does the impossible. You are a God of restoration. You can turn barren deserts into rivers teeming with life. And so, Lord, you can take my hopeless situation and turn it to joy. This is a psalm. This is a prayer of faith. You might be in a dry, barren, desert experience in your life right now. And it is real. And maybe you you just feel stuck in a loop of negativity. And you know you're stuck in a loop of negativity and hopeless when a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your words are always and never words. You know what I'm saying? Always 
and never. You know, things like, like this. I'm never going to find somebody to love me. I'm always going to be alone. My marriage is never going to get any better. Nothing ever goes right with me. I will always feel like I do right now. Nobody sees me. I'm never going to get out of my financial situation. I'm never going to get freedom from this sin stronghold. Nothing's ever going to change about our nation or our culture. Maybe you've been so caught up in this negative loop, this downward cycle, you don't even see the sources of life and the green and the river that God has provided for you in your life. Friends, we need to look to the psalmist. He was experiencing that desert. Ah, but he knew the power of God. He knew the character of God. And he trusted that God can do it again. He could do the miraculous. Have you ever looked at God's track record? Have you ever looked at his track record in the scriptures and see time and time again where he comes through? Have you ever looked back at your track record and the times in his life where he has come through for you. The Lord can bring water from a rock. The Lord can turn your desert into a river. I love Psalm 40, excuse me, Isaiah 41, 17, 18. One of my favorite places to go when I'm experiencing those kind of desert moments. When it says this, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Some of us need to commit that to memory and pray it back to the Lord. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said about personal revival that God can do more in five minutes than man can do in the previous 10 years. He can do it. What we need in our feelings, in those desert experiences, are do-it-again prayers of faith. Do-it-again trust in the character of God. Are there things that you can look back to in your life to see the hand of God that you can bottle up and say, God, you did it back then. I'm asking you to do it again. I remember growing up, we, we didn't have much money. We grew up pretty poor. We always had our needs, but that was about it. And the family car broke down, and it was like, it was done. I mean, it was, this thing was totaled. It was done. And uh, I remember just being around the dinner table for a couple of weeks, and we would pray, Lord, you have met our needs in the past. We're going to trust that you're going to meet our needs again. Lord, we're going to trust you. Just day after day, we'd pray those prayers, Lord, do it again, kind of prayers. And um, here's what happened. I don't, somehow, some way, $10,000 showed up in our life. Now, listen, no, no one... No one knew, my dad was a preacher. It's not like my dad got up in that, that, uh, on a Sunday and said, you know, I've been really praying that somebody out here is going to buy me a new car. No, no, no. We kept it to ourselves. We just prayed. We trusted the Lord. And the Lord provided just what we need 
in that moment. And I've been able to take example like that and, and countless others in my life and kind of bottle them up and recall them and go back and say, you've been faithful. Lord, you will do it again. Lord, do it again. You are the God who brings the water in the desert. Where do you need to start praying, do it again, prayers in those areas of always and never negativity? What kind of prayers do you need to pray? Do you need to pray prayers that sound like this? Lord, I remember when you gave me a joy unspeakable. I'm asking that you do it again. Lord, I remember when you broke this sin habit or this addiction. Lord, would you do it again? Lord, I remember when my spouse and I were really in love with each other. Lord, you can revive our marriage. Do it again. Lord, I remember when my child committed their life to Christ and was baptized, and they were not walking with you, but Lord, would you do it again? Lord, I remember, I look back at our history and our country, and there was seasons where it just seemed like there was a spiritual awakening. Lord, would you do it again? We need to pray, do it again, prayers. Now, this is the first part. We're, we're, only, we're only halfway through, because there's a whole other image here. A second image in this psalm The second image is that of sowing our tears. Look at verse 5 and 6. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves, that is uh, harvest baskets, harvest bundles of grain with them. These are two very different images that the psalmist is picturing. The first image of streams in the desert point to works that are all gods kind of all of a sudden outpouring of miraculous revival, things that happen just like immediately. Amazing, miraculous events in response to our prayers. But the second image points to God's providential work, working in partnership with us to faithfully, daily, slowly labor and toil with the work that God has given us to do. See, God works both through the miraculous, sudden intervention, and through the normal, everyday grind of our due diligence, of our good work. The image of sowing the seed. I mean, anybody anybody grow up on a farm or farming? Oh, my goodness. Look at us. We are are total suburbans, aren't we? Um. So farming, you guys heard of it. Um, so, so if you, any of you have a garden, all right? Okay, all right. You guys know. So sowing the seed, it's a picture of daily attending to your lot, you know, to your responsibilities that God has given you. You know, the, the farmer every day, whether he's feeling down or not, whether he's depressed or crying or she's, you know, just going through a heartache, a, a trouble, Guess what? That farmer gets on their boots, goes out, and works the field. That's the imagery here. Work. Put on your boots. Face the challenges and trust God to be the one who provides in the normal means of grace of our resilient, faithful effort. Let's be honest. We, we really like the first image. We like the second image less. 
God, do the miraculous. Bring me on, bring me some of those streams in the desert. Hook me up with that 10K, you know? And sometimes we avoid the daily monotonous rigor of work, working the field. And some of us need to hear this today. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling in our lives. Some of us need to hear this because you're in a desert season in your life, but you're just stuck playing in the sand. And you're not moving. No, no forward motion. You're praying, God, do the miraculous. Give me a job. But you haven't put any resumes out. You're not going to work in any networks. You're not trying to work and find and start here and then kind of level up and work hard by just your, your diligence with an employer. Oh, God, hook me up. But I'm not sowing any seed. You're playing in the sand. Or God, you know what? I'm just so lonely. I need some friends. We haven't really come out of your house since a pandemic. You, you haven't come, some of you, lovingly talked to you on the live stream. Some of you have very good reason why you're home. Health issues, totally get it. But some of you, you're in the sand. And we, we were feeling like a desert experience. You need to be back in fellowship. You need to be finding, being a good friend to have friends, you see. And you could apply this to any area of your life. Oh, God, give me a better marriage. But I'm not going to go to counseling. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to work on it. I just want you to zap my spouse so they be the person I want them to be. Work? Practice? No. Friends, God works through the normal means. And if you are stuck, you need to start getting out of that sand pit and, and sowing the seed. God will begin to bring the harvest. You say, but, but you don't understand. I, I'm, just, I'm just overwhelmed with sadness and, and tears. Listen, the psalmist recognizes that. But notice what he, what he says. We sow with tears. He's assuming the tears. He, he's not emotionally detached. He's in pain. He's in sadness. Cry. It's good for you, friends. But your tears should accompany your feet, your work. In fact, the tears are actually contributing. You see that? The imagery of you're, you're, you're sowing the seed and your tears are watering it. There's a beautiful image there of your tears actually working with you to accomplish that which is what God wants for your life. And this is true spiritually. Did you know that God keeps a record of all your tears? Isn't that a beautiful thought? Psalm 56, 8, record my lament, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? God keeps track of your tears, and one day he'll wipe away all your tears. And so here's the encouragement. Don't waste your tears in the sand. Invest them in the soil. Don't waste your tears in the sand. Invest them in the soil, in your labor. Do you trust God with your tears? Do you trust God with your work? Be encouraged by Galatians 6, 9 that says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know what separates Christians 
from other people. It's not, listen, it's not that we experience, you know, no sorrow or pain. We've already established that. It's that we don't give up. We persevere. We don't give up. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're knocked down, but we're not destroyed. We're like Rocky Balboa, right? We get knocked down, but we get up, rock. You know, we get back up. And so maybe you feel like you've been knocked down in your life. Maybe you feel like sexual, you know, sin has knocked you down. Get back up. You know, you, you were trying to be sober and, and you felt, listen, get back up. Your marriage feels like it's on the ropes. Don't give up. Work to love each other. You feel like, you feel like, you know, you're, you're working hard and maybe a nonprofit or a ministry of mercy somewhere. Maybe you're working with under-resourced kids. And some days you just feel like, man, is anything happening are these kids, like, are they, am I doing any good? Don't give up. Get up each day. Work the field. Till the soil, friends. Don't give up on the unborn. Don't give up on the abandoned children. Don't give up on the sanctity of marriage. Don't give up on family. Keep sowing, investing your tears for the harvest. Now, you say, Nate, okay, man, you're really passionate up there. This is a really good motivational speech. But here's the thing. I mean, really, aren't we just talking blind optimism here? I mean, yeah, you know, this, a speech like this might make you feel a little bit better. Maybe it you know, puts a little gas in the tank to go a little bit longer. But how do we really know that there's hope for the world? How can we even say if there's any hope for the injustices that we see? How is there any hope for my problems? Isn't it just blind optimism? It's a good question. Do you notice what the psalmist says? Those who sow with weeping will return rejoicing. Not, I hope they will, but who knows? It's will return rejoicing. Where in the world does he get such assurance from? Oh, friend, he gets the assurance from the promises of Scripture that point not to our ultimate effort, but point to the one who will come, the Messiah, who ultimately will be the one who brings in the sheaves. He will be the one who comes and restores the harvest. He will be the laborer of the field. He will be the one who will come to save his people and restore all things and wipe away every here. That's what he was ultimately banking his hope for, is the Savior that was to come. And friends, we are grounded in the same kind of assurance to anchor our hope and restore our joy because we have the gospel of Jesus, the one who was predicted to come, who was prophesied about, came, and he will come again. So we find ourselves in a similar place, saying, you will bring the harvest, will you? the ultimate harvest. I might not get everything I pray for now, but all of our prayers are a yes and amen in the Lord because it will come, friends. We have a sure foundation. You know, Jesus took on the glorious mess of this world. 
He came as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knew what it meant to labor with tears, to sow with tears. He experienced rejection. He experienced going to the cross to pay for our sin, sowing in tears. His body was buried like a seed in the ground. And when he died, it seemed like all hope went with him to the grave. But what he sowed in tears, he reaped in joy at the harvest of his resurrection. And we reap with him his resurrection. Jesus got knocked down. Satan thought he had him out. He got back up. Amen. He is the one who is a stream of living water in the desert. He is the one who restores our greatest dreams of being forgiven and redeemed and complete the person that we always dreamed that we could be one day. Friends, I just want to encourage you to in your pain, in your grief, take all of your tears, take all of your grief and all your sadness and all your good work and diligence and labor and trust it to him because he's taking it. He's preparing it. And he's going to come back and bring with it. And he's going to take all of that and mix it together and build an entire new world. The world of our greatest dreams where there will be no pain. The world that is free from injustice and suffering. And you and I will be the people that we are destined to be. And so till and trust. Don't give up. Trust the track record of the one who restores all things. I'll leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon who once said this, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. His hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Trust his heart. You might not see it yet. You look everywhere around and says, desolate here. Trust. You trust. Where do you need to Pray that he would bring streams into your desert. Where does he need to do it again? What areas do you need to start working the field that you've been reluctant to do so? May the Lord restore your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are some people here that there, there, there's a wrestling match happening in their hearts right now. Because they really want to believe all this is true. But they're looking at their circumstances. They're looking at how they've been left down, let down before. And they're, they're, they're just struggling to really give you their life and open their fist to you. Lord, would you come and minister to them in this moment with tenderness and grace and mercy. Show them something this week, some sign this week that you're real, that you're here, that you care. Lord, they might learn to trust you. Even just a little mustard seed of faith. And Lord, for each of us, whether we have big faith or no faith at all, Lord, take us to that next step of faith in you. For those, Lord, that are dealing with deep, deep sorrow and depression, minister to them, might they hold on to you and trust your heart even when they can't see your hand. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.